Hey, welcome to the Juice Bar Experts podcast, where we are going to give you tips, tools, strategies for launching a new juice bar or scaling and increasing the profitability and efficiency in your existing juice bar. I'm your host, Andrew McFarlane. The last 10 years, I've been in the juice bar business, running my own juice bars, as well as helping hundreds of entrepreneurs all around the world launch successful juice businesses. So without further ado, let's get into it. As always, we have a very exciting episode ahead, a special one for me because I'm speaking to a close friend and fellow entrepreneur, Aram Zadikian. He is the co-founder of Margot and Linda's Vegan Kitchen. They are an LA-based company that is on a mission to make packaged food not suck. He started this business with his sister, and they really rethought many of the traditional practices that food producers follow, from how to produce in small batches, uh, back-of-office automation, and customer discovery. Aram has a passion for solving old problems in new ways. Uh, he has a love for helping other companies go through their digital transformation. He has a background in software development and has done that for over a decade, building a range of products, uh, and really believes that the future of food heavily depends on reinventing old systems and bringing tools that were once only available to large-scale businesses to startups. You guys are going to love this episode. We talk about everything from his vantage point as a wholesaler that sells to juice bars uh, and what he really feels that other retailers and juice bars can do to support their wholesale vendors all the way to what his experience was getting a deal with Whole Foods, which a lot of us know is kind of the holy grail of wholesaling healthy food products. And he shares a lot of things that you probably wouldn't expect. So you're going to want to listen to the end of the episode. It's full of gems of wisdom. I know you're going to enjoy it. So let's get into it. All right. Uh, welcome to another episode. Very, very, very special episode for so many reasons. Um, we've got Aram Zadikian, who is the co-founder of Margot and Linda's Vegan Kitchen. One of my favorite people, uh, from so many levels, a close friend of mine, someone who as an entrepreneur is one of my favorite people to speak to and collaborate with. Um, we've got some side projects that we've been cultivating that we'll talk about a little bit later. But first and foremost, Aram, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being here. Andrew, thank you for having me. Always, uh, always a pleasure. And so to start, um, I just wanted to give the audience some background um, because, you know, my experience of you, you have kind of an interesting journey and an interesting uh, position into what you're doing because your background is really in kind of, um, you know, software development and programming, right? And then through proximity, your family has really been in the food industry and in the health food industry. And through that, you guys started collaborating. So, Maybe you can walk the audience through a little bit of of how you came from, you know, what your sort of um, traditional um, career path was into doing what you're doing now and actually how you've begun to integrate both of those things, which I think is some of the most interesting part of of your journey is how you started to integrate software development and programming into more traditional, I think, which a lot of people in the food industry we know have very archaic systems and you've done a great job of like 
updating those things and making them more effective and, and, and customized to your business model itself. So maybe you can tell the audience a little bit about your journey as to, you know, from where you started to kind of how you got into doing what you're doing and what you're doing now. Sure. So God, uh, it's been, uh, it's been a while. So yeah, we started back in, in 2012, uh, my sister and my mother, they were, uh, running, uh, a vegan restaurant in Silver Lake. And, um, yeah, somehow they they just saw the writing on the wall and they started transitioning into more of a packaged food company. And uh, um, you know, at the time, I, I was I was uh, consulting and uh, building you know apps just kind of across the board. And yeah, when I joined them, it was it was it was a little I was a, a little bit of a kind of crossroads, and uh, there was a real burnout that was happening around. Um, the stuff that I was doing. Uh, it was, it was very marketing focused. It was a very short shelf life, uh, to use the term for the types of apps that I was building. They didn't really have this longevity. And, um, I just, I, I didn't really know kind of what the, what the point was. So I was, I was really looking for, for deeper meaning at that point. And I honestly mm. was all over the board. I was even apprenticing for a master woodworker at one point. <laughs> I just wanted like a radical change, you know, in, in, in my yeah. life. And, um, that was a little too extreme. And, uh, uh, I kind of joined them at that time. And, uh, right away it was very apparent that there were, uh, a lack of, of systems and, and tools for the smaller producer, right? The startup producer and especially the type of food that they were making, right? It's this really highly perishable, super fresh, Everything is yeah. made to order. We don't hold any stock. Uh, so doing that type of process, the tools that were on the shelf at the time, they were very clunky. And um, really what we saw was we needed very fast uh, uh, production system to go from here's what we need to produce, here are the orders that have flowed into the system, to here's what we actually need to hand to the people making the food at that time it was mm -hmm. all us uh to know exactly what to measure to not have tons of extras right you're dealing with expensive ingredients so just managing that chaos and you can imagine as most people are doing we're doing it all in excel um we were doing it you know a lot of times manually by hand we were calculating stuff in the beginning so it was uh it was taking up a, uh, a huge amount of time trying to uh, manage that flow. Um, and, uh, you know, at some point you, you kind of give up and you start just doing it the way everybody else does it and it becomes the status quo. But I, I started to, we started to invest in building the, the tooling. And I think that that's been a, um, uh, a real advantage for us in in operating is that we went down from having spending 10 hours a day doing tons of paperwork to you know maybe an hour a day maybe less at, at, at times so th that's been a huge uh, time savings and just lack of of headache um yeah i think it's a it's a big gift that because you have that perspective and i think all of us you know, depending on how we find ourselves in food service, we all have unique skills, you know, like my background, I was acting. And so I have this like 
different approach to thinking about either storytelling or marketing or just presentation that maybe people don't have. And I think for you, um, we always have the lens that we um, are kind of, we nurture throughout our lives. And I think it's a, a really huge blessing that you have the background that you have because probably more than any industry, food service, which a lot of people don't know if they're not in it, suffers from some of the most archaic and antiquated ways of processing things. And it's one of the industries that requires in some ways the most sophistication because not only are you in manufacturing, if you're in the food service business, which people don't really equate, they think I'm in food service, so I'm making food and I'm talking to people. And it's like, yeah, that's the front facing portion of your business. But really you're in the manufacturing business, no matter what kind of, if you have a juice bar, you've got a cafe, you're in food manufacturing. And even more so, as I was saying, because the product is sensitive, right? You're not dealing with t-shirts that have a level of shelf stability that you can make some mistakes in your process and inventory and in your sales cycle and just have it sit there and you'll sell it when you sell it. No, you've got very time sensitive inputs and outputs that you really have to process efficiently. You have to distribute efficiently. You have to account for efficiently. And so it's, it's really an interesting juxtaposition where the mentality of the people who enter food service is so far from that of like an, a software engineer and like engineering as a whole, yet it requires that level of, of, of attention to detail and um, refinement in process in order to be very successful in it. Uh, and so, so I'm really glad that, you know, you, you are and have been doing what you're doing. Uh, and I think for people who are listening to this, I think one of the, you know, crossovers, I know a lot of our audience is, um, you know, in some form of a juice business or healthy food service business. And some of you might be thinking about wholesaling or not. And I think the unique perspective that you have arm is, you know, kind of twofold is one, you guys are doing wholesale distribution to different companies, you know, Whole Foods being one of them. And then, you know, the smaller mom and pop juice bars, which is really a portion of how we got connected. I actually met your sister at Crew that she managed. And then we started building a relationship. I opened my juice bar in that period of time. So when I think I first met Margot, I didn't have the juice bar. And then I opened it and then we were like, oh, great. And then you guys transitioned into doing what you were doing because she was managing Crew. And then you guys started doing uh, MLVK. And then we started selling your products in the store. And so I think it's an interesting perspective that you can offer um, twofold. One, really sharing with people how uh, maybe some things that they may not have learned or be aware of when it comes to the wholesaling aspect and branch, but also as a perspective from people who are working with different vendors, right? Because for me as a, as a you know juice bar owner, I have one vantage point. I'm buying from you, but you have a, a totally different perspective on what are the kinds of businesses and what are the kinds of retailers that you want to be in with and why. And so maybe let's start there before we go into the whole wholesaling thing. What are some key things that you would you would share with people about that dynamic and relationship um, from your vantage point that they may not be aware of when it comes to working with other outside vendors? So let's see from so from the perspective of the um, you're saying more from the perspective of our shoes from somebody who's trying to sell into retailers. Yeah, what are some and, insights. And I, yeah, and I know that sometimes we've talked about like, um, you know, for for me, I find that with clients and prospective clients, 
there's there's a way that we can work with them that makes their life easy, makes our life easy, and the kind of like certain ideal client that I'd like to work with, right? And the same way I would imagine for you, yeah. there are certain vendors that you distribute to that um, make your life easy, make it harder, things that as a as an actual juice bar, they might not be thinking about you so much, right? But right, I think right, that you can right. probably offer some insight into some things that they're probably not aware of that can make the process more smooth or just things to look out for when it comes to actually working with other vendors and wholesalers that sure, are actually wholesaling sure. for them. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I think, uh, yeah, I, I think the, the customers that are, that are great, I mean, it, it always comes down to just human connection, just being down to earth, being transparent. Uh, that's always incredible. I think one of the big missed opportunities is uh, as, a, as a producer of, of product, the more feedback that we get from the retailer because really they're they're the ones that have the the keys to the customer right they're they're the customer facing portion of the of the supply chain and i think a lot of times there's this black box i mean it is a black box and if i think if we took the time more often to communicate and, and convey insights that they're having to producers, I think that we would get, they would get better product because we would take that, we take it very seriously. Sometimes one vendor, one customer will tell us something and we'll change our entire direction. So, right. you know, how many conversations are we having? And I think if we look at uh, leveraging that shelf space efficiently, uh, we need guidance a lot of times. So uh, I think that's a valuable thing to do. And I think that if you did that, it's a, it's a real value add to the producer because they can also take that and share that with other accounts. Um, and everybody wins. And I think what happens is those customers are the customers that we really look out for because they're no longer just a source of revenue. They're a source of product strategy and pipeline. Um, so that's, that's kind of a big one outside of the, the obvious ones. Uh, I think the, um, I, I think that there's just from a, a more nuts and bolts, uh, side of, of things, obviously being clear about, um, seasonality, being clear about kind of what's moving, what's not moving, uh, and, sharing that data so that we don't overstock or we don't suddenly get items dropped uh, because I think that can be mm -hmm. very, really damaging to, to a producer. Right. They're, they're, they're gearing up on the back end, right? They're gearing up a lot of supply, right. a lot of, of team. And suddenly if, right. if things drop that, 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 especially in a, in a fresh food item where, you have stock that you know right. you no longer can really use. So I think just again having that communication is uh, is key. And then lastly, on the, some of the smaller shops, uh, I think the the especially in this industry, any industry for that matter, but I think especially in this world, it's a really small world. And I think being um, really good on your payment terms is huge. Mm. You know, it goes a mm. long way. If, uh, if, if you pay on time and if you're not going to be able to pay for some reason, like being really upfront about that, 
from yeah. the beginning and asking for additional terms. Like don't have the, we gave you, you know, net 15, net 30, and then it becomes net 60, net 90. Right. Um, I, I always yeah. tell people, and I want to, I want to go back at some point to touch on what you said before, but just to this last thing is I always, and I know that for, there's kind of a, I don't want to say a conflict of interest, but everybody wants their cash flow to be ideal. And so for yeah. me, I always prefer personally to pay my vendors as soon as possible, um, even though it's not the best thing for my cash flow, but I know that it makes me have um, kind of a disproportionate advantage in that relationship because they know that they're not, I'm not going to be a company that has to, they have to track me down and right. ask for, and, and, and I think a lot of times this is kind of the unseen um, leverage that happens in relationships. You don't really even understand the kind of favor you're getting because you're only in your situation. Um, but I do realize from being on both sides of that, right, whether we have terms with clients or people have terms with us, I just say, what would I prefer and who do I prioritize and who do I give preferential treatment to? It's the people who aren't damaging my cash flow. It's the people who I know right. that if they've got an outstanding balance, they're going to take care of it. And I have, I have no qualms about doing extra work for them or whatever we need to do because I know it's not going to be an issue at the end of the day. Whereas if there's someone who you're not really trusting whether or not they're going to pay you and if they're going to pay you on time and then how much energy you're going to have to spend trying to follow up with them to get that payment, you don't really want to, you know, you, you're not inspired. And I think every relationship, whether it's a relationship with your employees or your customers, you want it to be an inspired relationship. And I feel like one where you're able to pay people on time or early and as soon as possible, while not good for your upfront cash flow, I think the long-term dividends on that relationship are much more valuable. Um, the other thing that I wanted to share and kind of go back on from my perspective, right, being a juice bar owner and event and, and someone who's um, purchasing things wholesale to sell to my customers is it's an interesting thing because especially in a juice bar, which is different than a grocery store, right? For a juice bar or cafe, your primary, like 80% of your income is coming from your product. And so when I hear you saying all these things, I'm going, wow, that's a profound insight. And while I love the idea of being able to give my, um, you know, people who are retail, I'm, I'm retailing their product in my store, some nuanced insight into what customers are saying about the product and without just like dropping one of the SKUs or anything, I'm also going, man, this is, that's 5% of my sales. It's 10% of my sales. And so what feels like there is a need for is probably some sort of, and this might be something, you know, some software to develop, but something that uh, allows for really easy communication where it's not effort filled, right? So like if I'm with certain vendors, one thing that I love, and I'm sure you love too, is really easy ordering process, right? So if there's some portal that I can order the product through, and at that stage, maybe there is a questionnaire that comes up that says, hey, is there any new things that we should be offering? What are customers saying? You know, something that makes it really easy for me to give you guys feedback that I'm not happy, because you know, every business owner's got 1,001 things to do, plus more that they don't even realize they need to do. Uh, and so while I'm, I'm trying to think about what's the, what's the practicality of, of, of supporting that intention in a real world scenario, as opposed to it being sort of a, an ideal, but with, without really much consequence, because there's no way to really execute on that when in the spectrum of sales, if it was 80% of a business's sales, you better believe they're going to be talking to you every day about it. But when it comes to the point where it's literally 5% or 10% of a juice bar sales, then that becomes part of the, the sticking point for how do you really get that feedback um, and have people right. invested in giving you that feedback. 
No, it's a great point. Um, so the next thing that I want to talk about and to kind of switch gears is I know that a lot of people, especially in, in, in this world for juice business owners who would love, you know, it's kind of the holy grail, right? Like getting a deal with Whole Foods is like, that's everything. There's no really other retailer that you could get a contract with that would make you feel like you've made it, right? That's the moment. And so, uh, and I'm sure in that, right, like in every, in, you know, every career moment where you've made it, you've also made some other things that you didn't realize you also made. So first of all, um, maybe you can talk us through like, how did you guys go from, you know, being in mostly mom and pop retailers and then maybe some mid-sized grocery stores to getting a contract with Whole Foods? And, you know, how did you feel when that happened? And then what have been some of the revelations in that relationship and just in the reality of it that many people probably wouldn't assume from being on the outside? Yeah. Uh, God, there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we worked on Whole Foods. So Whole Foods was definitely something we we always uh, wanted to do from the beginning. But I think it was in the beginning, there was a timing issue and there was a scale issue. And mm. we had heard the the horror stories of, you know, you get into Whole Foods and then it, it crushes your business because you just can't handle the account. And um, in a lot of ways, that's very true. There's definitely a lot of... Uh, uh, it, it's it's a very different game now. Um, it took us uh, over two years in in the sales cycle. So uh, there, I think, depending on the category, of course, if you're in the perishables category, I think there's a little bit more advantage because it's harder for the large national companies to really come in. It's mostly regional and small players. Um, so they're more willing. I think people want novelty in that area. Of course, this is all pre, pre-COVID. Now it's a totally different story. Um, but I think the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway, if I could go back and really understand, is I think there's a real disconnect between the, the market need for a product, the channel that you're selling into, and being really honest with yourself about what you want to do and, and where your product fits. And I think that if you know the, the, the moving parts and you know your margins and you know what the retailer margin needs to be, I think we've had this conversation in the past, whereas like in the beginning, I almost had a some, somewhat adversarial relationship with a lot of our customers where it was like, we make the best product. We want to make the best product. And why are they charging so much? Why are they marking it up so much, right? Our margins are barely there. Like, it's not fair. There's this fair mm. thing that was constantly coming up. Mm. And I think that it's always, the grass is always greener, right? We always look as a producer. I didn't, I didn't take into account the true cost of running a retail operation right. and the value that they bring into the market. So there was almost a, you know, you hear this, a lot of business models, it's like, oh, cut out all the middlemen. Like the middlemen do right. nothing, right? Right. Um, and there's, they're there for a reason. They're, they're, otherwise they wouldn't survive. So the understanding what everybody needs to make their business model work and right. then don't try to force your product and your ideals into that world 
but I think really take that into account and then balance it, balance your needs and balance their needs. And I think if you can do that, you're going to make a lasting relationship. If you don't, you might get in, but then the very harsh reality is going to slap you in the face when you see that, oh, we're going to shrink your margin. We're going to cut back on this item. We're going to discontinue that item. This doesn't work. You need to cut the price down. Um, so not knowing that going in and not knowing what you're actually competing against and the, the, the rest of the, uh, the competition on that shelf, knowing that inside out, understanding where they're probably priced, deconstructing that product and understanding it through and through. I think that's the, um, that's the homework that is really easy to kind of skip. It, right. it, it for the large for the larger retailers, you can kind of skip it for the smaller retailers because I think right. it's a little bit more you know down to earth, and there's a little bit more room for some human to human flexibility. But in the right. larger space, you're you know you're cut. They don't care. I mean, they care. They're humans. They just they they have mandates that are way beyond uh, right. them yeah. as a human beings. Saying, hey, yeah. I want to I want to be nice, but I'm sorry, like. I can't, yeah. I can't possibly, I'm going to lose my job. Right. So you're dealing with Amazon, right? If you're dealing with know, Amazon, right. Amazon yeah. owns Whole Foods. So you're yeah. dealing with a, a, a behemoth company. You're not talking about, a, we're not talking about big company. We're talking about the largest company in the world. Yeah. And they yeah. got that big for a reason. And I think that that's, you know, to, to what you were saying before is um, you, have to in some ways as much as it's beautiful to be like yeah we'll see what they need they'll check in with what we need and then we'll come to this beautiful balance it's like no they have all the leverage in this relationship they don't yeah. need you they don't need yeah. you and exactly. their business isn't going to change at all but it means the world to your business because if you don't have that account when they equate for and i think something that may not people may not have grasped when you first began speaking about it is that when you go from, let's say, being at one scale to having your business triple or quadruple because of one account, you have at that stage invested a whole lot of infrastructure, a whole lot of money in equipment, a whole lot of money in expanding your business to a certain scale. So not only do you need them from strictly a cash flow perspective, but you actually have a lot of possibly debt and uh, and kind of even human debt, right? Where you've got employees and you've got staff that if that account goes away, it's going to decimate you in a lot of ways. So this is, I think, you know, to kind of magnify the probably the the element that most people probably wouldn't think about when it comes to this holy grail of accounts, which is something that you mentioned you worked on for two years. So when you're working on something that hard, it seems to go, be something that you say, that I really, really want because it's going to be extremely beneficial. But I find that like many things in life, whether it's fame, right? It's like, it's a double-edged sword. It can be beautiful because it can expand your revenue in ways that you've never seen overnight, but simultaneously, what's the burden of that, right? What is the liability of having to double or quadruple your business for one account overnight that can now shrink your margins at will, can cut your account at will, doesn't mean anything to them. So it it's a it's a really kind of an imbalanced relationship and one that 
yeah, you may still aspire to have, but it's important to really understand what is the true liability of that, unlike growing organically, which, you know, there's obviously limitations too in that linear process because there is no other Whole Foods, right? Like there's no other business that's really competing with them in this space. And so you either decide uh, we're going to just stay at a certain scale or we're going to play in the big leagues. And this is what that means because I don't know what the alternative is. Is Yeah, maybe Sprouts, but Sprouts isn't Whole Foods. There's, you know, there's route. There's a few other grocers, but they're just, they're not having the kind of traffic. And so it is the 80-20, right? Like they're the 80%. And that's, you know, you have to jump into the the freeway or you're going to stay on the residential streets and you're going to be moving at a certain pace and you're only going to have certain access. And so um, I think that that's a very profound lesson for people to take in who aspire to wholesale um, and also aspire in particular to get relationships with Whole Foods. Um, I guess, you know, in, in the business world as an entrepreneur, we're always learning everything, uh, learning things, I should say. We don't know everything, but what has this these lessons in this relationship inspired you to do in the evolution of your business um what's the next step or you know how do you feel like you're growing in 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 light of this i think the the biggest theme these days is uh customer discovery really understanding the the market i think it's it's really hard to put our preconceived notions of what's going to work and what the market wants and just launch products. It's so there's something in us as, as humans, I think it's a human characteristic that we just want to make stuff. We just want to go, we want to start coding. We want to start cooking, right? Mm -hmm. We want to just do Mm -hmm. it. And um, it's not to say that we should sit and just think and, you know, an analysis paralysis, right? But I think that there's a balance there of uh, opening up and figuring out how do you get to a place where you've hit some scarce knowledge. And um, I think that if, if, again, if I could go back in time, I think what that does that, that I, you know, I love this saying, right? Um, the plan is nothing, right? The plan is useless. Planning is everything. And I think just going through that thought process and thinking through what does this mean for competition? What does this mean for our pricing strategy? How are we going to market this? Who is this for? Um, really laying it out. And I know that this is, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is um, in the vein of a business plan, right? Because this is, this is, I think, a different type of planning and thinking. Um, at the core, it's trying to find insight. It's trying to find something that others are missing, right? Mm-hmm. And if we can do that and then validate it, uh, we we save just a ton of time. And I, I mean, again, this is the whole lean startup methodology, but to actually do it, I hear so much talk about it, but then I see that when you come, when you come to the point where you're going to start doing the digging, somehow it just goes into, okay, I think we did enough. Let's go and start making now. Um, so that, that's the, that's the big theme that I would say. And you probably, I would assume, learn the most when Margot was doing the sampling, right? Like, cause uh, you know, just for people's insight, when you Huge. get a new account yeah. or you like, you know, have a juice bar account, you guys come into the store, 
give some samples of the product that's in the fridge now. People give you feedback. And 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 there's a thing. So, yeah, this is huge. There's something about you being on the ground and also hearing what people are not saying, right? Because if you're just like sending out questionnaires and people are telling you, yeah, we love the Ruby Red product or we love this salad and you're not getting the emotive and tonality of someone's excitement, right? I remember when I was at Erewhon one day and I was eating uh, one of your meals in front, nobody knew that I knew you, right? But I was in there, I was like, and I love your product too. And so um, someone was next to me and they're like, oh, you got the pad thai, I love that thing. I love that, I eat that every day. <laughs> and they were just so vocal about it. And I tried to record them because there's something about the level of passion that someone has. It's one thing for someone to say, I like it. It's another thing for someone to, to really express themselves in such a visceral manner that which is really the kind of energy you need to have diehard fans which i think is the same thing i tell all of our clients and people in our audience yeah it's one thing to test your product on your friends and your family and for them to maybe even placate you and tell you oh yeah they're excited that you want you want to start a business they don't want to let you down they don't want to discourage you honey that smoothie is great i love it right it's like guess what? You're not selling to your mom, your sister, and your brother. Right. You're selling to consumers. And then you're also selling in a market where there's competition. And so your product can't just be good. It has to blow people's minds. Because if it doesn't, you're going to get drowned out. And so how do you get that information? And in the same way too, with people's menus, the advantage that a retailer has and a retailer that is on the ground, especially, and I mean a business owner that's in the store, at least for the first location or the first few locations, is they have that direct line of feedback for product iteration. They are there. They are seeing what complaints come up on a regular basis. And if they're smart and they're agile and they're lean, they can adapt to that quickly. Because otherwise what happens is you just expand the chaos or the ignorance, right? You're in a place where you don't know things and you're making heavy bets and heavy assumptions in every direction of your business based on things that could not be correct or might not be strong enough. So it's, I think it's not binary. Some people say it's good or it's bad, but it's more of a, of, of a gradient of how good is it and how good does it actually need to be in order for you to be successful. And this is not just from a product standpoint, but what are the other inputs? It's a production standpoint. It's not, hey, my product tastes good and people love it. Okay, great but it costs you too much money. That's not going to work. Oh, my product's good. People love it. Oh, but it's too complicated to implement, right? Or your inventory, the training is too hard to get people to make this, you know, flamingo salad. Like, yeah, people love it because it jumps out of the box or, you know, and it gives you a hug. It's like, that's great. But the reality of it is you can't do that on a regular basis. That's not right. a business that works because you're on the shelf next to, so, so there's, there's a lot of, things that people need to have come into place all at the same time. And to, to what you were saying, which is, I always feel from people is people get so excited about just selling something to someone. The idea that they created a product and someone paid for it was like, oh my God, that's amazing. But that high will wear off in you know, three months, six months, when you've got real financial liabilities, you're putting real time and energy into this business. And it's not even about someone just bought a product and they went and told their friends or they took a picture of it on Instagram. You're going, wow, I've got a hundred grand of debt. 
that I need to pay off. I've got, you know, employees that have to feed their families based on this business. It gets real. And and for me as well, and and I'm and I, I don't want to to put anyone down for having this feeling because I was that person, right? I very much suffered from that um, sort of excitement and illusion. Uh, and it was the moments that I remember like two weeks into me opening up my first storefront where we had, you know, I don't know, 50 items on the menu, just too many. And I was seeing, wow, our spoilage is through the roof. I've got to let my manager go because I can't afford their salary. And she's crying. I'm crying. She had, she, she made plans for her life. She might've gotten a new apartment based on the salary that I promised to give her that, that dream's going away. So it's, it's not, you know, and, and I don't want people, I, I think it's important to have a mature level of, of caution and if, you know, to do it right, do it intelligently. And this is why we're here, right? To learn from other people's mistakes so that way you don't have to have this conversation and you can really double down on customer discovery, really invest in that development. This is obviously a service we provide in terms of menu development. And it's one of the things that I think is the most critical because it's there's going to be production implications, inventory implications, cost implications. And sometimes it's really just difficult when you have no experience in the industry to get that right. Because you you don't have anything to pull from, right? You know, I've I've got five years of doing it wrong, and then you know another five six years of actually doing it right. There, it's it's a difficult thing to to figure out on your own. Um, and so, for you guys now, and I know um, something that we talked about, and, I, and I'm curious how much you started to invest in this, but. One of the, I just did a, a video recently about like making your business pandemic proof. One of the things about that was just sales channels. Like I, I was kind of using this analogy that like the pool of money that you make is like the ocean. The ways you make that money are like the rivers that lead to that ocean. Everyone has a different number of sales channels. And for you guys, you guys have had maybe like one or two sales channels primarily. And then one of them being a really, really huge account. And then you've started to go, wow, maybe this isn't even though it's beneficial to us, it's a great relationship to a certain degree. It has its limitations. And I know we've talked about more direct to consumer stuff now. Um, have, you know, yeah, talk me through like what the evolution is. And, and in some ways, what feels like from the conversations we've had, it being kind of another beast in itself, right? It's another undertaking. It's a totally, although it's the same product, and yes, you're delivering it somewhere. It's kind of a different business. Um, so talk me through your thought process around that and where you guys are at in terms of implementing direct-to-consumer stuff. If you're going to do it or it's too challenging, what it, what's, what's it look like for you? Yeah, so we launched uh, we launched whatisfood.com, and uh, that's the D2C offering. Uh, it's only local in LA. Um, and yeah, the numbers, when we run the numbers on shipping the product, uh, I just don't, I don't really see a, a clear path for that. I think that the companies, if you look at the Daily Harvest and the other, you know, Freshly, and I think they're doing it at scale. And I think if you're doing it at scale, it's possible, right? But I think the the fresh food, the amount of packaging, the amount of logistics, I think the logistics cost is extremely high. The customer mm. acquisition cost is high. Um, mm. It's commoditized marketplace now the switching cost is really low so right. you're getting tons of incentives from all the different companies that are, a lot of times i think is it just um uh vanity stats that they're really trying to bump and make sure that they have solid top line growth even if they're not profitable and right. are you compete against that right so 
I think that it comes back to, you know, for me, the question is, what are our strengths? And let's really play into those. Let's make sure we're playing into those. If our strengths were, we can raise boatloads of money. We're really good at that. We're really good at convincing investors to give us their money. And um, then I think, you know, take that into account. If you're somebody who can do that, I think you got to build your business models around that because that's real. Um, I don't really think that's where we are. I, I haven't mm-hmm. had a ton of, of personal success with, with raising money. Uh, so I don't, uh, I, I can't really factor that in when we do the modeling and we go, Oh yeah, if we had this much money, if we had a huge injection of cash, sure. You know, I can make it work. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but you know, and, uh, until that time comes, I think it's how do we, how do we leverage the local community? I think staying local, it comes back to my first insight, which is really understanding what you want to do. What, what kind of company do you want to build? And, you know, if you, if you want to build a, a lifestyle business, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Right. I think knowing that and staying true to that and not suddenly pushing yourself into a corner that forces you to no longer be a family business, a lifestyle business, but now you're, you actually have to start growing in, you know, something that an investor would look at and say, this is something that is investable or bankable. Um, Mm -hmm. It's going to change your business. It's going to change the velocity which you have to grow. It's going to change the types of products that you have to make. Right. So, uh, back to the D to C thing. It's like, what does that mean? What kind of product do we have to, to make, to make that work? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have to figure out now how to get that margin back so that you can put that into the cost of UPS and FedEx and right. just customer acquisition cost. Right. So it's like right. you're, you're, you're actually ending up with a lot of these companies, I think, uh, um, if you look at the product and you really deconstruct it and you look at the price point, you know, you're, you're actually, and you're, and on top of it, they're barely profitable or not profitable. And you go, where's all the money going? It's marketing logistics. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's kind of, cause I talk to a lot of people who are um, thinking about wholesaling or maybe not even wholesaling, but doing direct to consumer uh, from, you know, like a, a ghost kitchen or something. And, the thing I always tell them is that, yes, on some level, it might be cheaper than starting a storefront. Definitely, you don't have the same sort of uh, minimum threshold for getting started, right? You don't have this requirement, but a lot of the money that you feel you're saving in your startup or your build out or rent, you're going to be paying in marketing because people don't know you exist. You're a ghost, right? Like you have to get in front of people and... Um, the difference between people building a habit of going to a grocery store or somewhere else versus them building the habit of, which is really a new habit, because a lot of times the reason people will purchase your product is not because they've gone to the grocery store with the intention of purchasing your product specifically, they're going grocery shopping. That's, that's the thing. They need to buy essentials. And while they're there, we're going to pick something up. Oh, that looks nice. Let me grab it. So because you're kind of, um, you know, and I I use dessert as like a metaphor, and obviously you guys do sell desserts as well, but um, you're sort of an afterthought or you're an impulse purchase. It's then gets even more difficult to build yourself into 
a direct-to-consumer route because you've never really been seen as the primary um, sale product, even though people can do it, it's just much harder to do. And and then there's all that, all those issues, right? With like even the customer acquisition is going to be high. Then the question is, what's the life cycle of the customer? That's unknown to you. So that's a huge risk when you start to say, okay, we're going to dump 50 grand into marketing. And yeah, you might acquire, you know, 5,000 new customers, but the churn rate, you know, meaning the, the rate at which you lose customers might not uh, justify the life cycle of, uh, and the life cycle might not justify the amount that you've invested in acquiring that customer. So then that becomes a little bit of a risk and a little bit of discovery. And at the end of the day, with all those assumptions, you might, everyone in this game might find out, yeah, that this play just doesn't work. Like it just does not work for food because what the actual price point that you would need to charge consumers to make it valuable is not what they're willing to pay like the convenience that they're getting, it's just like an Uber or something. Like if Uber, although it's a great service and it's really, really convenient, if it was $100 a ride, it wouldn't exist. We wouldn't do it, right? So, and and if the company decides that in order for us to provide this specialty service, that's just what it has to cost because of the logistics, because of maybe government regulation, because of all the things that are happening in the environment, then the business model doesn't make sense. And so right. I think if there's any really strong theme that I'm gathering from all of this is that, uh, there can very much be an idealism and a glorification of a certain kind of business model um, and a way of doing things because it's either really convenient for the business owner, right? It's like, I like this idea of doing this because it doesn't cost me a lot of money. It's like, that's great. And I love the idea of that too. But there's probably only one or two ways that that really, really works. And you have to get these one or two aspects extremely right. Right. Like if it's the branding and the marketing and then the logistics of the execution and the recipes, like there's, to be honest, it's probably more than two. I find that I often say that, you know, in order for a business to be successful, um, a hundred things have to go right. And in order for a business to fail, it only takes one really significant thing, significant thing to go wrong. Um, mm. And that's, you know, it could be a harsh reality. And at the same time, it's what I find to be true. And, and many people don't think about that. And I've had so much more respect for other entrepreneurs and other successful businesses because you really see like, wow, yeah, raising money isn't easy. Logistics in a business isn't easy. And on top of that, just the product that we're dealing with on top of everything, if we were talking about selling something else, if it was rice, we'd have our own problems, right? It'd be easier on a production standpoint because it's rice and it's got a shelf life. It'd be harder because it's a commodity product. And now you're competing with right. everybody in the world and, you know, there's no innovation on rice. Right. And right. maybe you figure right. out what that is, but I don't know what that is right now. <laughs> the other thing that I wanted to say too is, um, and this will be the last thing is like, it seems like there's an innovation that's needed. Cause if you're, if in your business, if you're not, you know, if, if raising capital doesn't seem like the low hanging fruit, but for me, knowing you, you're extremely innovative on a technology front and a production front. It almost feels like the distribution has to have some level of innovation, right? Where there's like, you know, you go like a vending route where you're like, skip the retailer we have these little vending machines. We can put our product in there. We rent that space out. It's they're like they're positioned in the right way to get in front of people. And then because of the way that the rent is, we can maybe charge less for it. And we're just in the right place at the right time. We've got no competition. And and because I think the idea of even having a lifestyle business is another ideal because the market is changing. Like and you can keep your business at this, but it's dynamic and you can get drowned out at some point, right? Where you thought you had something, but because you weren't fortifying your business or doing something to strengthen or grow the business it's you know you're out in the jungle 
and you're like, yeah, I'm chilling and I've got my, my hammock out and this is good and I'm going to stay here. And then the tidal wave comes or the bear comes or like there's, there's no, there's no way of, of, of fortifying any business. So it feels like, yeah, you're either growing or you're shrinking or you're like having to really put effort towards staying the same because that's not something that I've found the, the sweet spot in and just being able to do for any extremely long period of time, right? Maybe a year or two years or three years, but you know, I haven't seen that play out in the realm of like decades. Um, yeah. So I think it's like you have to get more innovative in order to really, to really have a, uh, and even then if people see that you're doing that, what's going to happen, they're going to go, oh, wow, that person, that's, they're doing well with that model. Let's take that over. And then they raise a bunch of money and then they, <laughs> it's, it's just like, just the name of the game. Yeah. 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 I think if you're comfortable, you know, beware, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I do know um, that you have to, you have to jump off soon. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Where can people find you? I don't know if there's anything last that you want to share, uh, before you hop off. Um, but. yeah, yeah. I think, uh, this was great. I think, uh, it's, it's, these are deep topics. We definitely got to, to dig in a little bit deeper on some of these things. Um, yeah, you can, uh, drop me a line, uh, uh what is food.com, uh, or Margo and Linda's vegan kitchen doc, uh, mlveganKitchen.com. Um, I'm sure you can share some of the links in the, in the description. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put some links um, down, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'll always love to connect with, uh, fellow startups and, um, uh, I, I can talk, uh, about, I think we have lots of technology stuff to talk about, so let's dig into that yeah. next time. Yeah, let's do another one. Um, yeah, because it's, it, you know, Arm's got limited time today, but he he and I will, yeah, you're one of the very few people that I'll, I'll get on a call with and feel like inspired to, you know, speak at length for hours at a time and feel like by the time yeah. I'm done, like things in my mind have Likewise. shifted and, and I've learned more. And so Likewise, always appreciate yeah. your approach. And, and I think the thank audience you. has a lot to learn from you as well. So thank you for taking the time today uh, to join us. Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. I always love being able to talk to friends and hopefully give our audience some enlightening information in the process. Uh, if you guys don't know, we run a full spectrum development agency and firm. Uh, we can help you with whatever you need from where you are now to whatever your goals are. So if you'd like to discuss how we can support you in your business development and reaching your business goals, feel free to message me at Andrew at startajuicebar.com, and I'd be happy to have a conversation about that. Until next time, we're on a mission to make this world have more healthy food service businesses than unhealthy fast food service restaurants, and together we can make that a reality. See you guys soon.